Nashville's won the ball back, and it's Randall Leal into the final third. As Mukhtar to his left, Leal goes alone, he scores! A Tico twist to the dagger! Well, hello and welcome to the Club and Country podcast. And we might have told you this before, but we're the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage. And we are two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Wes Bowling, Nashville SC's radio analyst. And I am Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of ClubCountryUSA.com. Moon Taxi with the music and the highlight courtesy of ESPN 94.9. They go up 2-0 on Orlando, and then they give up two goals in a draw that felt like a loss, but you heard Renda Leal's breakaway goal. Shades of Dax McCarty against Inter-Miami with the defense dropping and nobody covering him, although Renda Leal a little bit more of a threat in front of goal and a little bit more excusable when you have Hani Mukhtar and CJ Sapong running on your flanks to either side. Nonetheless, Nashville drops two points against Orlando, and I will say they earned a point against NYC. Orlando felt like a loss, Tim. The scoreless draw against NYC, to me, at least felt like a win. Yeah, I mean, we've said this before, that not all wins are created equal. Not all losses are created equal. And and we saw this week that applies to draws as well. They felt like really, really different outcomes. But when you look at the standings at the end of the week, each of them was a single point in the table. And that's honestly what ends up mattering, even if the emotional impact of them is, is pretty different. It's international break, so there's a lot to chew on as we will look backward today at the last two matches, revisit a couple of controversies connected to them. Uh, but first, where does Nashville stand? They, they creep toward the top, toward finishing in the top four as they're still in second by five points over Philly and Orlando. We should note the Union have a game in hand, so it's more tenuous than it could be. Uh, the boys in gold still have to visit the teams in third fourth and fifth they go to philadelphia to orlando to dc united that last one's up next nashville could have delivered something close to a knockout blow last week tim and gone nine points up on its closest challenger for second if it won both of those matches it settled instead for extending the fight for another round yeah and i think you know they didn't get that that knockout blow and there are some difficult games coming up but let's not forget that there's some less difficult ones in there too they'll be hosting the crew and red bull teams that are well below their historical standards particularly so on the road and, and bringing both of them to Nissan Stadium, a, a crew team that Nashville pretty uh, simply drew in in their new stadium there. And then, of course, the Red Bull game was was probably the first nightmare of the season for Nashville fans. But that's a situation where you'll see this team kind of bounce back, especially coming home and, and getting a rebound result there. And then, of course, this team also still has yet to travel to FC Cincinnati. It sets new records for futility with each passing game, <laughs> I think, up there in the Queen City. But, you know, th- those now shift from solid padding to it's an already strong resume into vitally important games unless NSC wants to rely heavily on the out-of-town scoreboard to hope that they don't get caught from behind. In the early shout, we'll discuss a first for Nashville against Orlando in a bad way, as well as something impressive that Nashville has done repeatedly that they did again against NYCFC. Then we will go back to our classic Embrace Consensus segment, a pair of controversial decisions this week or non-decisions, if you will, from the referee. One of them a decision against Orlando to give Jack Mayer a penalty. The other to not give Tati Castellanos a red card or really anything, any kind of punishment (laughs) uh, in the Nashville-New York match. What do we think about that? What does Gary Smith think about the latter? He was pretty plain in his comments on that, and we'll play those for you as well as our opinions. In the mailbag, once again, barrage with questions, and many of them, wondered if Nashville's attack is waning and and if Nashville needs to make any lineup changes and tweaks to get back to the attacking soccer that that they've shown. 
We'll see if we agree with the premise of that issue and what fixes there might be to make sure the boys in gold are in top shape headed into the playoffs. And then finally, a big national honor for one of the boys in gold. We'll discuss that in Outside In, plus Nashville's quartet of qualifiers. Still thinking of a catchy nickname for them. The, octo- the, half, the, oct- the half Ocho. <laughs> the half Ocho, the, the Octo Quad. Mm, we'll, no. we'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. Well, our analysis is better than our, our naming uh, abilities, that's for sure. <laughs> and, and those four players will head off to World Cup duty. What can we expect from them? What can we expect from the U.S. men's national team? As we'll dive into the club, uh, the countryside of club and country. And so let's first dive in to our early shout. New York trying to go over the top. They find Medina, fires it, another save by Joe Willis. Sprawling out to block the shot. Rebound comes out towards the top of the penalty area. And Nashville reclaims with Randall Leal. Heroic goalkeeping from Willis. Another point-blank denial of Medina. And we remain scoreless in the 85th minutes. Three saves for Joe Willis against NYCFC in a scoreless draw on Sunday. He earns his 12th clean sheet of the season. And Tim, his save count wasn't the highest it has been this year. Just three mm-hmm. against New York. But... All three of those were meaty, substantive saves. It might have been his most impressive performance as Nashville allowed the third most non-penalty expected goals of the season and refused to concede. Not going to credit the back line with that. Going to credit Joe Willis this time. Yeah, NYC didn't test him maybe as much as you might expect given the shot count and the XG count. It was 1.61 expected goals to American soccer analysis, but as high as 2.6 to Opta's model, which is the one that MLS considers official. So some of that, I think, was defense, too. Walker Zimmerman blocked three shots and earned him a spot on the team of the week in Major League Soccer. But regardless of whether the Pigeons spent too much of their day missing the mark completely, Willis really did stand tall in some truly crucial moments. Uh, 1v1s with the keeper are not a situation where you expect the keeper to make all three saves, and he did exactly that. New York fell in the woodwork in the sixth minute in the back of the net in the seventh. Both of them off set pieces. Stop me if you've heard this before. (laughs) Uh, Fortunately for Nashville, Alex Collins was in an offside position when he scored, and the goal did not count. Nonetheless, a slow start for Nashville, one of the slowest they've had this season. And as Gary Smith tells us, they were fortunate to recover and maintain their resolve. When the day's not going well for you, and it didn't start well, and I don't know why, but sometimes these lunchtime kickoffs, 80 degrees here, can can create a bit of lethargy. It certainly didn't for them, but maybe the, the fifth away game out of six was a little bit too much for us. When you start that way, it's easy for players to melt and to shrink and to allow the opposing team just to have their way. And, and I would say... You know, the biggest quality we can take out today is we stood firm. Tim, for my money, this was Nashville's worst start to a match since the first two of the season against Cincy and Montreal when they gave up two goals and short spans in each of those. What happened? Yeah, I think the the simple picture is they played the best team they faced all year. And that's not the same thing as the most successful before the Revs fans who are listening to this podcast come come in my mentions real quick. But (laughs) NYCFC is is from a technical standpoint, from a team quality standpoint, chance creation, chance prevention standpoint. I think for my money, it's the best team in the league. And um, they'll drop some results that they shouldn't despite that. And Nashville failed to take advantage of the fact that NYC will make some of those mistakes. But that technical ability in soccer IQ is, is something that Nashville has hasn't seen and certainly hasn't seen on the road in an 11 a.m. Central Time start. It's just a bunch of factors kind of coming together, and you you can see why they were sleepwalking early. I think that really lends itself to a good embrace consensus topic that could result in some debate. Maybe next week we'll do it. Who is the best team in the Eastern Conference, and you know how do you define best? Because for my money, if I look at NYCFC, 
I see the most stylish team. I see the most dangerous team. I see, you know, maybe the chippiest team. Uh, <laughs> whereas in why, you know, New England has won an incredible percentage of its matches by one goal. They're winning. Mm-hmm. They're winning in tight matches. And Bruce Arena took issue with uh, with a question recently along those lines and said, "Have you watched much soccer? There are a lot of one goal games." Totally pretentious answer, but he's not totally wrong either. Um, Interesting. No doubt the quality of the opponent had something to do with, with Nashville's early struggles and the fact that, that they're actually pretty happy to take a point away. Uh, let's rewind back to the 2-2 Orlando draw, though, and, and give you some gold nuggets. Nashville went ahead 2-0 on a PK put back by Hani Mukhtar. He missed his PK. He was first to get the rebound, and Pedro Galese really had no chance uh, to recover. Arandaleal breakaway goal gives the boys in gold their second. Heard that highlight at the top of the show. But the boys and golds gold allowed two goals in the final 15 minutes, including an equalizer off a corner kick in stoppage time. And, and here's the gold nugget. It's the first time in Nashville SC history that the club led by multiple goals and failed to win. So a draw against Orlando, I think you and I are both going to agree that normally that's a pretty dang good result, especially mm-hmm. when Nashville needed to just hold off Orlando, couldn't afford to lose. But given the opportunity cost, maybe the most deflating scoreline of the season. Yeah, I mean, you and I spent the first couple months of the season talking about how Nashville hadn't conceded at all while leading, much less by two goals and giving up both goals back to to give up the draw. So this is a team designed to get shutouts when it doesn't need a goal itself. So once you go up, you don't have to worry about scoring a whole lot. And that's what makes this result all the more disappointing because you haven't seen it from this team and you certainly haven't seen them give back two goals. More disappointing than the Toronto away loss, do you think? Uh, I don't know. You have a much better team, but you also have a much more friendly venue. So I think those probably balance out on the end and, and, uh, losing versus drawing is always a a more disappointing result because the one point difference on the table is, is mathematically it's proven there. One is greater than zero. (laughs) And this is why you listen to club and country. It's that heavy hitting mathematical analysis. I think it's Orlando. I think the stakes, you know, as a six point match against Mm -hmm. a, a contender, it, it hurts you more and the way it happened losing late like that. I, I think it's the most disappointing result of the season. Probably another gold nugget for you. A friendly decision by the score after Nashville's draw with New York prevented the boys in gold from doing something they'd never done before, which is to complete a match without a shot on target. Walker Zimmerman was credited with one after the fact and a scramble around the box. Still, Tim, the match tied for the lowest shots on target of the year. Just one, which also happened in Columbus and against New York Red Bulls at that same stadium, which is pretty ironic coming into it, considering Nashville and New York led Major League Soccer in shots on target per 90. I didn't even think about the same stadium situation, but we really have some questions to ask of Dax McCarty and Alex (laughs) Wheel specifically. But um, speaking of Wheel, actually, I think you could fairly say with him in the starting lineup, Brian Anunga and Anibal Godoy in the starting lineup and not in a 4-2-3-1 where they're kind of playing on different lines from each other. It's just not a lineup designed for offense. I think Gary Smith rolled the dice and hoped for enough Mukhtar magic and, and that Sapong finishing that we've gotten over the past several weeks here to overcome a defense first outlook. It's And it's happened at times this year. We've seen Hani Mukhtar and CJ Sapong go out and score goals when they're, you know, two of the members of a front three that isn't getting a ton of help from the lines behind them. But against a talented NYC team that had 60% of the possession almost, you can certainly see why Smith made the halftime changes to get more possession. He replaced Mwil with Randall Leal, and that that really did help the team wake up a little bit. But Mm -hmm. again, you're not going to get, you know, 
45 minutes of, of your best available attacking lineup is not going to be awesome. And it's certainly not going to be awesome against a team as talented as New York city. Even if all they need to do is play keep away from you to prevent those chances. Sure. We'll have some data for you guys later on what happens when Alex wheel replaces Randall Ayal in the starting lineup. But, but first last gold nugget, impressive stat for you. Nashville has now been shut out seven times this season, but it has lost just one of those matches. And while we could easily pick that data out on Football Ref or look at the schedule, whatever, uh, I will credit John Freeman with that. He's the yeah. one who I've covered that and mentioned that on, on the air the other night on ESPN 94.9. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say shout out to your radio partner John Freeman there, buddy. But it kind of goes back to a point that I made before. I think I made the egg egg before chicken version. Now this is the chicken before egg version. That's when Nashville is set up defensively. They're just not gonna give up a ton of goals, and that's why you see a bunch of scoreless draws. That's why you see once they go ahead that they can hold on to a lead. But if they aren't planning to go ahead at all, they certainly have the opportunity to prevent the opponent from scoring a lot and obviously we've we've touched on joe willis as well and he played a huge role in this one but sometimes you get a huge goalkeeper performance and that helps you get that vindication that you kind of were looking for from a defensive performance if we'll carry the chicken versus egg theme forward Mm -hmm. and talk about fouls pun intended (laughs) but actually a legitimate observation um it was interesting to me uh, to see Marcus D'Oliveira be pretty light on the whistle. And a lot of people were, mm-hmm. were complaining after that NYC match, certainly about a, a, a red card worthy, potentially challenged by Tati Castellanos. And I think that was drawing people to say, if only he'd called the match more tightly. I don't agree. The way New York was trying to sell fouls, trying to, to mm-hmm. you know, embellish quite a bit, especially Castellanos, I think that would have gone against Nashville's desires of, of creating a physical match, mm-hmm. of trying to slow New York down that way. You know, when you have a defensive posture, you you, you want mm-hmm. the referee to, to be a little more conservative with the whistle. Yeah, I, I thought Marcos de Oliveira called a pretty good game, aside from one moment that you just alluded to and that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, we, we are not shy about saying, you know, Fotis Bazakos had a bad game earlier this year. John Freeman had a bad game just <laughs> a couple of games ago. I, I want to make sure we don't <laughs> confuse people with John Freeman. Um, you know, we're we're not shy about saying we think there were there was major, you know, issue, a major issue with the way a game was called. But I actually throughout the course of that game, aside from the Tati Castellanos play, thought it was a pretty well-managed game by the official. Yeah, I thought he was uh, way more up to the task than Tim Ford when these two teams came together in Nashville, mm-hmm. who was oh, absolutely. extremely naive and failed to to manage the game, resulted in a couple of red cards. Um, so the see, cons- we, see, we slammed, we slammed three guys, so shouts to you, Marcos de Oliveira. <laughs> if you can get one out of four in MLS <laughs> that actually does a decent job, I think you're doing okay <laughs> at pro referees. Uh, so the consequence of a two-point week for Nashville is that five playoff competitors gained ground on Nashville. Six, if you count New York Red Bulls, I, I don't. And, and and you shouldn't. They might get into the playoffs, but it, it would require near perfect play from Red Bulls and a pretty big collapse from Nashville to get caught by Red Bulls. So I wouldn't worry about them in terms of a direct Nashville competitor. So only five points stand between Nashville SC in fourth place. Nashville sits in second. Only seven points stand between Nashville and seventh, which is the playoff line. Only eight points then above eighth place and being out of the playoff picture. The margins are getting thinner and the schedule is not getting easier. Yeah, I, I'm going to channel Aaron Rodgers of, of 2014. And yes, I did look up what year he said this. It's R-E-L-A-X. Just relax. Nashville won't cruise to the finish like maybe we had hoped within the past couple episodes that they would have the opportunity to do. But assuming the boys in gold will play worse than their season-long resume while the contenders behind them play better is, is also unfair. You kind of assume that teams play it 
or close to the level that they've been at over the course of the year. Is NSC a lock for a second? No. Is it by far the most likely landing point? At this stage, I would have to say yes. I think maybe Philadelphia could catch them because they do have a game in hand. But at this stage, second is, is far more likely than than third, fourth, fifth, sixth. And I think not making the playoffs is, is basically out of the question at this point. I agree with you. And yet I'm cautioned a bit by the fact that Nashville travels to third, fourth, and fifth place and has the toughest remaining schedule of everybody mm-hmm. not named mm-hmm. New England um, th- that's in that mix. Uh, so it's certainly not worth taking anything for granted, but I think we could probably get used to these scoreless draws. We already are <laughs> when Nashville <laughs> needs a point. And the best thing I can say about this team, besides its, its attacking flair at home, is that when Gary Smith wants a point, Gary Smith typically gets a point. He doesn't always get three when he wants three, but when he wants that one, especially on the road, Nashville can can draw on on that backbone and and get it done. And if they can do it against New York and New England, goes without saying, they can do it against anybody. The next up, an opponent Nashville is sure to hold scoreless. International break action <laughs> resumes on Saturday, December Saturday, October sixteenth in DC. Again, DC United trying to creep up on the boys in gold. The players will train Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, then they'll be off through the weekend. Uh, Tim, in your view, what does Nashville need to work on before its final six matches? I think just a big thing is just um, kind of reinforcing what they've already been able to establish over the course of this season. Obviously, they need to improve kind of some of the defensive set piece stuff that we've seen. But the biggest one for me is keeping guys fresh and keeping them healthy. They have, you know, the two training sessions this week that you mentioned, but the whole weekend off, basically. Obviously, Walker Zimmerman, Randall Leal. Uh, Anibal Godoy and Alistair Johnson are not going to be rested over this international break, but the rest of the squad, CJ Sapong, Hani Mukhtar, those guys can put their feet up a little bit and, and stay recharged for the sprint to the finish. All right, well, let's embrace consensus and talk about a couple of things we've already alluded to on the show. Two controversial calls in the last two matches, neither of which went Nashville's way. And when we say calls, one was a call, one was a complete ignorance of um, the obligation to make a call. There, I just revealed my opinion about that one. <laughs> uh, but we'll start with Orlando. Jack Mayer goes up against Daryl DK in the 74th minute, I believe it was. He, he is wrong-sided by DK in trying to catch up. He gets locked into contact with the Orlando striker, who was really impressive to watch in person, by the way. My first time seeing him in person. Just smart and massive. Uh, they get locked up, and the referee blows the whistle, gives the penalty, Orlando gets one back and ends up, of course, equalizing. For me, it's the wrong call. Uh, Daryl DK appears, and you can you know, go on Twitter and see any number of, of, of mm. GIFs and clips that, that have the replay. DK appears to hook his arms around the back of Mayer, as Mayer is, really, you have to say it, bear-hugging DK from mm-hmm. behind. Um, to me, that's how you defend a physical striker like that. Yeah, And then DK leaves his feet, to me, intentionally so, or he stumbles mm-hmm. on himself. I don't think he's knocked down by Mayer. And he almost kind of pulls Mayer with him then. I don't see a penalty there. However, on review and given the clear and obvious standard, it, it's kind of like in, in football when you're tugging a jersey. You're going yeah. to put yourself in a position to get called for pass interference, even if maybe there's no impact there. I think that's the case on Mayer. And it's tough to overturn, even though I think it was the wrong call. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I do love soccer's clear and obvious standard, particularly in comparison to the indisputable visual evidence one that we see in American football, which which results in even weirder calls somehow. 
if you look at that replay for a moment, you see it's not a foul on Mayer. You look at it again and you say he might have even been the victim of the foul, not the aggressor. But you can't overturn on those standards unless it was an error by the official mm-hmm. in the eyes of the video assistant referee. And I think one other thing that you could potentially look at is is slight makeup call. The penalty that had been granted to Nashville was on the weaker side as well and saying, okay, this is a 50-50 call. Maybe I'll give it the other way to kind of level off um, maybe what was a, a an early whistle before. It's something that you're obviously not supposed to do, but I can certainly see psychologically how you, you would fall into that trap a little bit. I can see it. I thought that penalty uh, on on Godoy was legit, though. I I thought, yeah, certainly. But together. but when you see a guy moving away from goal, kind of gets clipped, you say, okay, maybe maybe I I don't think I made the wrong call, but maybe I'll I'll be a little more lenient going the other direction too. Yeah, I do. I actually want to toss you a, another a call from this Orlando game, though. Okay, would Brian Anunga have headed the equalizer home if if he hadn't been in a headlock in that in that stoppage <laughs> time play? I think it's another that doesn't come back on VAR standards, but 99 times out of 100, you probably see that amount of contact, I guess you could say, called a foul on the attacking team. And you almost never see it called a foul on the defensive team for obvious reasons, because that becomes a penalty kick. Mm -hmm. But I think it seems like something that, you know, most of the time he's not even in the position where the ball kind of hits him in the side of the head and ends up in the back of the net anyway. I don't. I don't care about that one as much, honestly. I think yeah. you could you could split hairs really easily on the box in the box. And again, going back to the football analogy, you could call holding on every play, right? You could call mm-hmm. a penalty in the box on on every corner kick if you wanted to. To me, you need to. It needs to be egregious enough. I, I see your point, right? It, it does yeah, yeah. impact the play. Um, but you know, I know Nashville was was screaming from the from the touchline all game long in that one that Rodrigo Schlegel was holding Walker Zimmerman when Nashville had its own corner kicks and other mm-hmm. set pieces. And I think you know a certain degree that's just going to go on on every corner kick. You could point to four fouls, so I'm not as bothered by that one. Yeah. Uh, I think now to answer your question, would he have committed the own goal if he wasn't put in a headlock? No, probably not. <laughs> I, I don't think so. So he standard, yeah, he was not trying to. That's for sure. <laughs> no, but, but again, there if you're if for some reason mm. you know they're going back and looking at that again, yeah, I don't think they're ever going to give that right. Yeah, point. yeah, agreed. Uh, all right, so going to our other question, and this one I think I think may be a bit a bit unanimous here, and we'll hear Gary Smith's thoughts on it as well. But but Tati Castellanos, so Joe Willis steps forward in the second half against NYC, and he sends a ball downfield. As he is, as, as the ball is leaving his foot, Tati Castellanos comes in late, striker for New York, raises his boot and uh, hits it in the in close vicinity to the um, the Willis Tower, if you will. Um, maybe we flatter Joe. I don't know. We won't go any further than that. Putting that path, but I mean, in my book, there. If we can get past that, uh, agree just red card podcast offense. It's a clear red. It's it's an absolute clear red. And you know, I'm not going to get overly heated about Marcos de Oliveira missing it in real time. Um, he's yeah. probably following the ball. He should see it. But that's why VAR is there. It's a clear red. And to me, it does rise to that clear and obvious standard. How does VAR miss that? Uh, the, the Willis Tower will not be standing tall this week. Should, oh. I, should, I, just, should I just forego that? Okay. No, no, too late, too late. I mean, th- this is one where the, the nature of slow-mo replay probably makes the foul look a little bit more egregious than it may have been. Castellanos was definitely late. He definitely made contact to Willis's upper thigh at, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, a player with Castellanos's less than sterling reputation, in- including a guy who was incorrectly not red carded in the previous matchup between these teams and the, the disciplinary committee came back and said, essentially, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, 
if you look at it on VAR, you should have the opportunity to say late studs up on a keeper. Maybe there shouldn't be necessarily a standard that the keeper gets a little bit more leeway, but they traditionally do. Sure. That's a red. It's a red. Gary Smith mm-hmm. agreed. So incredibly late. I mean, this kid is a, a real, real talent, but he's got a fiery temperament. And I think he's really, really fortunate there not to, not to, you know, fall foul of a serious punishment. He's very, very late. He catches Jar around the hip um, after he clears it. Um, and, you know, again, I think, uh, I think that was probably the worst moment in the game. But I think both teams will expect that the, the ante is going to be upped. You're going to have to deal with the, the physical stresses of the game. And, and our guys stood up to that and stood firm, as I said. And to be clear, he didn't dwell on that in the post-game press conference. Uh, he did he did proactively comment on that situation um, when he was asked about the chippy nature of play between those two teams in their two matches. But uh, he went on to then blame Nashville's performance on, on other factors, certainly. Um, could, have, could have been a different game if Nashville were man up. Um, who knows? But they still get a, a result that I think they, they sought in that one, quite honestly. Moving to the mailbag, and a lot of you want to talk about the attack, as Nashville, of course, is, is held scoreless for the second match in three. Chicago Fire do it, NYC does it. Andrew says, CJ has earned the right, based on his performance throughout the season, to be in the starting 11 for the remainder of the year, but it does appear as if his dynamic run has dwindled. Your thoughts? And if so, should Gary try incorporating Daniel Rios Akeloba into the lineup Sooner. So a little statistical perspective there for me. Sapong has just one goal in this last seven games, and it was the tally in Toronto. So from a, a pure productivity standpoint, yeah, his his hot run of form has dissipated just a bit. But that's not all he brings to the pitch. And I think Gary really likes the balance that he finds in the trio of Mukhtar, Leal, and Sapong. Uh, Mukhtar being technical and dynamic. Um, and that cultured European style of play and just having that free role. Leal being very instinctive, very confident, unpredictable, sometimes for worse, but usually for better. And then CJ then is savvy and excellent at, at seeing what those guys are doing and at combining with them and creating space. Um, with all the love in the world for the other options there, Ake Loba is, is just not in a world right now where he's going to be considered for significant starting time. Uh, they want to get him confident. They'd love to see a couple goals out of him before the playoffs, but he's just not there right now. And Daniel Rios, look, we both really appreciate what Rios represents, but but he doesn't add what CJ does for this team. Rios might be number two on the uh, the personal depth chart of all players behind Dave Romney only for this podcast. But um, yeah, I, I think what you mentioned about CJ is, is exactly right. He's, he's the best fit for NSC's top attacking unit, not necessarily just for his goal scoring, though obviously there have been times this year where that's been super important. But he brings a ton of energy, both attacking and tracking back defensively. That is so crucial to the way that Gary Smith wants to play. And he has a knack for getting on the end of solid service. He is maybe not the purely fastest and certainly not the most clinical striker in MLS, but preserving the thing that he does the best, which is playing with energy, is, is a reasonable goal. There are reasons to rest him going forward here in this in this stretch here. But in games that Nashville truly wants to win, he has to see the pitch, even if it's off the bench. And, and it's worth noting, even in this, in this fallow run that you mentioned there, he has 2.45 expected goals with that one goal. It's just a matter of you know, he's getting into the spots and he's he, you're going to miss some opportunities with CJ Sapong, but you're also going to get on runs where he hits over his expected goals, too. And and hopefully, you know, the old the old adage in baseball that a guy is due. <laughs> we'll see if we'll see if that applies to soccer in the same um, statistically fallacious way. <laughs> that it doesn't actually apply in baseball either. 
John Mueller, sticking with that theme, uh, says he doesn't believe that chance creation is an issue for this team. They're good finishers getting minutes. But he asks then, why do you think the goals have dried up recently? Yeah, I, I don't think I agree with your premise, John. And it's just not, um, you know, obviously the, the recency of, of the New York City and in particular the Chicago games can certainly weigh on our minds. But we're also not even two weeks removed from the squad putting up five in a road game at Miami. Now that's, uh, yes, that's like Cincinnati South, of course, but the scoreless draws against Chicago, New York came with a depleted lineup on a crappy pitch and a game in which Smith decided early on that he was willing to draw against the fire. Who knows if he would have made that decision knowing that there are two draws in the next two games as well. But, and then the, the other one came against one of the best teams in the league. And if you look at the midweek game, it was a two goal outing. That's, you know, you know, pretty good, a pretty good return on, on Nashville's out, offensive output. If you look at a three game rolling average, you know, that thing that you can, that is very easy to look at in this audio medium of podcasting. <laughs> this team is scoring at about as high a clip now as it has total over the course of the season. Um, particularly when you adjust for the strength of competition, again, New York city and Orlando are some of the better teams in this conference. You can see obvious reasons why in the two recent scoreless outings I, I wouldn't worry about it too much it was two games that that had obvious reasons to be low scoring and the rest of it has mostly been fine to good yeah a bit of perspective here uh, Nashville has 20 goals in its last 10 matches Inter Miami has 25 goals this season uh not that my FC Cincinnati has 25 goals in its three years of existence. Don't look that up. I just made it up. Uh, FC Cincinnati's win percentage, by the way, this is something I just happen to be dabbling with uh, in, in its history. Uh, not counting USL is like, like 291 point, or something like that. Point no worse. So Ooh. this this came across. It was a it was a college football broadcast that was randomly mm-hmm. talking through Cincinnati teams and how the Bearcats uh, they're playing Notre Dame and won and I think deserve a shot at the playoff. They go undefeated. That's another debate we can have. Um, the Bearcats are the most successful team in Cincinnati since 2018. But they said since 2018, which means they, they, went, they went and actually looked at FC Cincinnati's final year in USL as well. And of course, that's going to skew the data by quite a bit. And even then, the win percentage is like 0.28 something. Mm-hmm. Um, it is actually 0.18, if you, uh, if you just count their MLS tenure. <laughs> Uh, just miserable. They lost one nil to Red Bulls. Uh, anyway, I'm not suggesting that Nashville SC fans should feel better about two scoreless draws on the road because Inter Miami and Cincinnati suck. Um, but I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly, just as, as a standard of comparison, and and I mean, yeah. I think you hit on XG numbers with CJ. I think you know there are other st- stats that point to mm-hmm. those two in particular dry games being a little more circumstantial uh, and, and not concerning. Um, Tracy Edwards continues to to bring up some some good points. Um, he says the rotating third center back, unfairly or not, has been directly responsible for goals that led to drop points recently. He points to Alistair Johnston, who uh, was involved in the concession against Toronto on the road, um, and Jack Mayer, of course, the penalty against Orlando. He says, I think our primary back seven are the best in the league when using a two center back setup, and he's advocating for considering returning to a four two three one formation. So Tracy, thanks for the question. I think it gives us an opportunity to break down how Nashville has performed with a three-man back line versus with uh, the four-man uh, back line with, with two center backs. Um, a significant percentage of goals allowed, first of all, by Nashville has come on set pieces. We've covered how Nashville actually has the highest percentage of set piece goals allowed to total goals allowed in Major League Soccer. And of course, in those situations, an extra center back should give you an advantage because you have another tall body in the box. So we're going to treat those as, you know, as out of the equation a bit. Um, stats 
with Nashville in the three-man back line. They are 8-2-8. Eight, and eight. eight wins, two losses, eight draws this year. 1.78 points per game. Comparing that to a four-man, three, one, and six. Just 1.5 points per game. Um, defensively, the results in, in small sample size early in the season when they're in that four-man, but 0.73 goals allowed per match as opposed to 0.83. So a few more goals, uh, 0.1 per match uh, allowed in that three-man back line. Um, scoring drastically in favor of the three-man if, if you assume then that they're lining up in the 3-5-2, the 3-4-3 three, 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 because it can also give them some advantages going forward. 1.83 goals per match compared to 1.3 goals per match in the 4-2-3-1. The majority of those early 4-2-3-1 games were also played at home. So half a goal more on the board with the attacking shape that the three-man back line allows. Pretty comparable defensive stability if you look at the numbers being only 0.1 per. I'm sure you could bring the XG and go even deeper into what was actually happening behind those goals. And then who do you put on the wing opposite Leal that adds enough value to justify the change? To me, that was one of the reasons they moved to the three-man back line was that Alex Muell, I mean, he's going to always give you effort, but he's not going to give you enough of a threat on that wing uh, to really, you know, I think justify switching away from the stability that three-man back line gives you. Yeah, I mean, I've been stumping for a return to the 4-2-3-1 just a little bit. Not not necessarily because I think anything is wrong with the three-man back line, but just because I prefer it. Um, I, I think the third center back is, isn't a weakness, but I think having that four-man back line allows Nashville's creative forces to bear a little bit less of the burden, which might sound a little counterintuitive. Hmm. I think when you put a guy like Alex Muell in there, if you add him to the wing, it provides a defensive force in the attacking midfield rather than kind of allowing opponents to progress the ball into a three-man back line or five-man back line if the opponent's in possession. You're taking the ball away from them higher up the pitch or you're slowing them down higher up the pitch. And that's something that I think um, you you see Nashville be a little bit more comfortable with. We've seen more counterattacking goals against the three-man back line than you certainly would have expected in any time in recent history either. But, you know, you laid out the stats there. It's hard to o- overall argue with the results. And if the attacking front three is, is playing the best that it can play as it's been lined up lately, I'm not going to mess around with that. It's, it's a true, like, philosophy over tactics choice or even a kind of a jimmies and joes because i'm a football guy on this episode apparently it's a, it's a jimmies and joes over x's and o's and whatever you can put under the field to make cj honey and randall happy and productive that's what you do so that leads to daniel's question uh, of whether we think any adjustments need to be made to the core starting 11 yeah and aside from a switch to a four two three one which i just explained may not be better i just like it more (laughs) i think the group that we've seen emerge as the first choice one in recent weeks with a couple of those spots flexible whether that third center back is jack mayer whether it's even eric miller i'm not an eric miller hater i know a lot of nashville sc fans are not particularly fond of him whether it's alistair johnson you get dan lovitz and taylor washington as the wingbacks together those are minor tweaks to what i think is you look at maybe a best 12 or 13 i think what you're seeing lately when you have dax and, and anibal godoy on the pitch together which we haven't seen enough of lately because mm-hmm. they've been rotated because of international duty because uh, of minor injuries because dax has served a suspension if you see those guys on the pitch together and and kind of the the front three that you expect those couple spots that are flexible are are kind of immaterial to me and i think that that's the best group yeah, dax and anibal by the way um have started just 12 games together this year. Um, interesting mm-hmm. stat there, 12 of the 28. Uh, I think my favorite look is that is that 3-4-3, 3-5-2, call it what you want. I call it a 3-4-3 because Leal is is so aggressive in that central role with Hani and, and CJ up top. I, I like Alistair at right center back. I think that gets your best three defenders on the pitch. And 
And it also allows Lovitz, who's on the right and inverts, to have a friend on the outside who can overlap in Alistair Johnston. And um, I think it's especially effective at home where Nashville tends to be okay with leaving itself a bit vulnerable to the counterattack. And when you have Dax and Godoy, savvy players who know when to drop back when Alistair's getting forward, I think it's a great look. I am still waiting for Taylor Washington to get that first assist in Major League Soccer. He was oh so close, by the way, on mm-hmm. the cross to Dan Lovitz that uh, hit Lovitz's strong foot and went just a whisker shy uh, of, of the back post. Uh, we're talking about a very different match if mm-hmm. that ball goes one foot to the left, not even probably. Um I like Washington on the left, though. He gives you just relentless yeah. effort back and forth, and he gives you some of the Alex Mwilness. Mwilness? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, that you know, pa- he's going to cover. Popping a Mwilly. Nope, nope, didn't work. Ooh. Put it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, these jokes are a vicious cycle. Are they a <laughs> unit cycle? <laughs> All right. Uh, I will not be a spokes person for any comedians anytime soon um, <laughs> anyway i think we've made our point and then ruined it um trevor asks uh, certain folks think that joe willis is a subpar keeper and that his success comes largely from having a stout back line what do the advanced metrics have to say about willis and where does he rank among goalkeepers of major league soccer trevor i i, I hear you and you even mentioned that you're reflecting conversation elsewhere uh, it's a bad day to pick that. <laughs> to, to pick that question. <laughs> Again, not picking on you, but it's a bad day to have that conversation elsewhere if that's going on this week because Joe Willis just single-handedly saved Nashville. There are times mm-hmm. when he has benefited from from what's ahead of him. Um, generally speaking, I'm not going to give you advanced metrics with my answer except to say his goals against average is second best in MLS and he has the most clean sheets. Those obviously are reflective of a holistic defensive performance. Um, so that doesn't really separate his performance from that of his back line. Quite honestly, I meant to look up his... Um, his goals minus ex- expected goals stat and, and give that to you. And I, I, I just didn't, um, I, well, I just forgot. it's your, but it's I'm your lucky you day. I'm yeah. guessing you have it, Tim. Yeah. If you look at, if you look at, I like to divide rather than subtract because it tells you a little bit more about kind of as a, on a per shot basis, but he was one of the best keepers in MLS last year by expected goals against in comparison to, to the ones that he actually let in. I I believe it was 87%. I actually didn't look up his number from last year, but that's the shots that are getting off. That's what the back line is allowing to get through this year. He's closer to just average. He's actually slightly below it. He's allowing 109% of expected goals to go in, but it's on a smaller sample size. Um, I think he gets a bit more grief than he deserves, especially since he's been hung out to dry a bit on set pieces. I would actually say many of the goals that he's led in this year are are kind of the opposite of that. They're ones that he was expecting his backline to come in and shut off before it, before it became an issue, whether that's on a set piece or whether that's on a counterattack. And he's faced a more difficult suite of shots so far this year. And he's done yes, slightly worse, but he's still having an, an outstanding year for a keeper. I had a good conversation with with Gary about Joe Willis uh, leading up to the Orlando match. Um, he was asked about the history of evaluating Joe and you know why Nashville signed Joe, and it was I mean it was a, a positive question that made it sound like they were you what know, were you thinking? Guessing it was very. You didn't positive. want to keep Zarek Valentin, <laughs> right? Yeah, for what they got, actually, yeah, seriously, what they gave up. They got they got a keeper who is exactly what what Gary Smith was looking for. He said as we were recruiting guys. He said he couldn't find a better fit from a recruiting standpoint. And Gary said, you know, there are more eye-catching keepers out there. I know it's not going to be a shock to anybody. He said, I don't like those guys. With all due respect to their athleticism, and, you know, he's not saying he dislikes them in general, but for what he wants out of a keeper Mm -hmm. for his team, he wants somebody who's going to make the saves generally he's supposed to make, be a presence in the back, and it's okay if he's not 
a maestro at playing it out of the back or going on, you know, deep runs into, into, you know, outside of his own third to try to set things up. Um, he wants a guy who's predictable and who is smart and steady. And, and that's Joe to a T. And I mean, that's Gary Smith to a T as well. I think they are, they're a good match for each other. And, uh, would agree, Joe, he's, he's not going to win keeper of the year this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he's the best possible fit in major league soccer for this team. Yeah, I think for this week only, he's not going to have great command of the box. Because <laughs> he got because he got kicked in the penis. <laughs> right. No, that's we got that. Thanks for speaking the subtext out loud. That's that's good. Oh, nuts. All right. Um, I was dying as soon as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> All right, let's take things outside the uh, 18. Uh Payancito. Oh, Speaking of offensive, Payancito gonna go gonna go on the other side of the pitch. Um, how many goals has the team scored when both Mukhtar and Leal are out? Um, so only one match this year have neither of them started. It was New England away. Don't need to tell you how that one went. It was a scoreless outing. Um, so when Randall Leal does not start, typically Alex Muel lately has come in and started for him typically in that playmaking role as kind of more of a, of the head of the midfield as opposed to a, you know, a creative player beneath the forwards. Um, Nashville scoreless in those three matches. And again, you can understand why he was employed in those matches. Columbus away when Columbus was actually good, New England away, NYC away. Um, on the other hand, when they both start together, when uh, Mukhtar and Leal start together, Nashville scored 35 goals in 17 matches. So Tim, if, if Sapong and Mukhtar are the kerosene, I think Randall Leal's the match. He's the one that really sets off that attacking duo. Yeah, and I've, I've asked Gary Smith about this. You know, on the occasions when Leal has scored recently, particularly in the uh, Inter-Miami match, I asked him, hey, are, are you happy to see him finally get rewarded because he's been providing you guys so much but not scoring the goals? And Gary couldn't have, have said it any better than you just did, which is those guys might be getting the credit and, and Mukhtar and Sapong are, are assisting each other and, and scoring. And Leal is not necessarily always getting the statistical credit for it, but he is so important to the way this team wants to play. Well, Gary Smith can always say it better than, than I say it. And it comes with a British accent, which means automatically <laughs> smarter. Um, of course. Uh, last question. Katie says the set piece goals are clearly an issue. How much comes from poor defending on the kicks versus giving up unnecessary fouls in dangerous areas? I think it's a tremendous question. Yeah, so I'll look at, first of all, how much of the actual production for opponents has come on those two different types of plays that are corners, which has been 2.97 expected goals against, and and Nashville has given up more than 2.97 goals on corners, you'll be shocked to learn, (laughs) and 2.51 expected goals against on set pieces. So I do think when you look at where those opportunities are coming from, it's it's not as much about the fouling as much as it is just teams converting quite a bit, and, um, you know, that the final outcome of that is some of it is just bad luck. So these things operate on very small sample sizes. If you knock in one or two, that probably wouldn't go in on a regular occasion. You're outperforming the stats. And from a defensive perspective, Nashville is underperforming the stats. And then, of course, we've talked a lot about, especially while he was gone, the absence of Walker Zimmerman is so important on set pieces. And I know it was not a panacea that when he returned. We've seen teams score set piece goals and um, multiple times over the past week and a half when he has been in the lineup. But at the same time, missing him for almost a third of the year when um, he was injured, uh, when his son was born, and when he was away on international duty. 
that's when a lot of the opponent opposing production on set pieces happened. And I think whether his return hasn't really been kind of that magic bullet because the team kind of fell into a rut of conceding on set pieces might be a possibility. But at the same time, a lot of it is just the statistical noise that happens on these kind of low, low trial situations. Walker is on the MLS team of the week this week. In fact, the only member of that group that did not score a goal this past uh, week. Interesting nugget there. Oh, Andre Andre Blake scored? Well, okay. Outfield <laughs> player. Jeez, what a week. Um, <laughs> Walker also, um, he didn't score a goal, but he did pretty much put a hole in the head of James Sands when those two came together on a 50-50 ball inside the box. Um, interesting moment because those two are, have been teammates for the U.S. Men's National Team in World Cup qualifying. And as we move outside in with that seamless segue, let's talk about World Cup qualifying. The second session is upon us. Alistair Johnston, though, before we get to that, is Canada Soccer's Player of the Month for September. That was announced on Monday. Alistair played every minute of Canada's World Cup qualifying competition, including the 1-1 draw with the U.S. at Nissan Stadium, and has become a mainstay for that team. You would expect him to start probably all three again uh, for the Canadians in these next uh, trio of matches. Yeah, it'll just really come down to whether they want to do squad and roster management because if they pick their first choice 11, he is in it. And they play Mexico, so he's going to have some, not just minutes, but some high caliber, mm-hmm. high quality, high demand minutes uh, for Canada. Meanwhile, Walker Zimmerman was called into the U.S. Men's National Team, but actually called in late. He wasn't on the initial squad that was released. Tim Ream had to leave due to a personal issue. And so Walker is brought in to replace him. I think we know where Walker stands generally in Greg Berthalter's mind, which is a guy who's going to be on the bench at best uh, for this team unless there's heavy rotation. He didn't play a minute for the U.S. in the first three matches despite being in the team. Are you surprised, though, in this case that he was completely left out initially? I don't think so. I think, you know, when Burhalter kind of reflects upon what he saw in the September window and looks at how that affects guys' club situations, he says... If we see a guy who we almost certainly are not planning to play during the October window, it's probably better for him to remain in Nashville, remain with his young son that we've already mentioned on this episode and and kind of, you know, say if I'm not going to play, I need to be able to get rest. I don't need Mm -hmm. to take a plane flight to and from Panama during that stretch. Of course, when you do have the the injury to John Brooks, that that is not going to draw an injury replacement. And of course, the Tim Ream personal situation that will see him not travel to the United States. From that perspective, now all of a sudden Walker's almost certain to play, even if it's just kind of as a rotational piece in one of the three games. And that's a very different situation. I'll take issue with one thing you said, which is that, you know, if he stays home, he gets rest. You and I have young <laughs> kids and I think it might be more restful to fly back and forth to and from Panama. <laughs> there are some nights when I wish I had a group of um, Central Americans pounding on the outside of my hotel and playing music in the streets versus the baby next, next door that's terrorizing us. But whatever um it's worth it it's <laughs> worth it i promise for you those of you who don't have kids totally worth it um leal and godoy called in for costa rica and panama respectively so once again the qualifying quartet the uh octo quad <laughs> to make that a thing we'll be playing um let's take it though to the u.s men's national team and their tri- a triad of qualifying matches no christian pulisic no Gio Reyna, both of them injured, um, but a couple of home matches and no mexico and tim it would seem to be a prime opportunity to take the decent start that that the U.S. had, second at the table on five points, and and really build on that and solidify its place in in that top four heading into the the crucial home stretch. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people were disappointed with the September window to come away with only five points. And certainly the way the Honduras game looked in the first half to come away with two or three points would have been even worse. But at this stage, you look at the, the windows where you get two home games and you say, these are the times that we need to maybe make up some of those points. Maybe feel like we gave away a point to El Salvador. Well, let's make up by stealing a point away at Panama or, or getting all three points against both of the teams that we play at home. Yeah, so let's handicap those three matches and give our brief predictions. Um, Jamaica Thursday, 6.30 p.m. in Austin. Jamaica has just one point in its first three matches, has really had some struggles. I think this is three points for the U.S. I think it needs to be three points, and I think it's a 3 nothing win. I think the U.S., maybe Ricardo Pepe continues his coming out party uh, in, in the state where he plays professionally. I, I think the U.S. should cruise in this one, although <laughs> you take nothing for granted even at home in CONCACAF play. Yeah, I think uh, Mikhail Antonio, since Jamaica now has one of the mighty West Ham hammers uh, <laughs> on his team, will score a goal. But yeah, yeah, I have a hard time seeing the United States being unable to outscore that. I think you see a 3-1, maybe a 2-1 win. It really kind of just does depend on on whether you get Ricardo Pepe in his home state, in the state that he still plays in, kind of going off a little bit. Because I, I do think he's the United States' biggest threat on this squad. Yeah, I think he has to be. Uh, at this point, mm-hmm. he has to continue to be because nobody else has really stepped up and, and provided that answer. Um, then it's the Fighting Godoys of Panama hosting the U.S. Uh, Panama drew with Mexico at home. I think this is going to be a tough one, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Canaleros surprised a lot of people in the opening window because they were expected to be one of the weaker teams in the octagonal and they went out and and got some results that people really weren't expecting of them. I think um, I was particularly surprised to see Anibal Godoy play every minute for his team. Like Mm -hmm. Alistair Johnston did for Canada. Alistair Johnston is also like 10 years younger than Anibal Godoy. So so it's a little bit easier for a younger guy, but um, yeah, I think, I think, in CONCACAF, I know it's it's kind of a crutch to say, oh, you can't expect to go on the road at, and, and win in Central America. But at the same time, if you do draw on the road in a match, as long as you win most of your home games, you should be fine. And I think maybe we'll get a little bit of Gary Smith out of Greg Berhalter playing for a little <laughs> bit of a draw. I think a draw is fine. There. I think a 1-1 draw is what that looks like to me. Um, the, the U.S. equals Mexico's result there and just has to be fine with that, knowing mm-hmm. that, that this is a Panama team that it should be hopefully fairly easily when the tables are turned and, and it's a home match. Yeah. Uh, finally, and that was Sunday at 5 p.m., by the way, and then next Wednesday, 6 p.m. in Columbus, Randall Leal and Costa Rica come to town. And you can make an argument that Costa Rica is is among the worst teams, maybe the worst team in, in the Oct. I don't think they are, but they're not far off. This is a group that's not in form not playing the soccer it needs to play to get to the World Cup and still trying to find answers under a new staff. And um, despite Randall Leal uh, being on that Costa Rican team, I think it's a 2 nothing win for Nashville. Yeah. I, I Did I say for time. Nashville? I said for Nashville, didn't I? Uh, it is <laughs> na- not na- a win na- for Nashville. Na- national, I think. <laughs> national team is what I was going yeah. for. Thank you. Yes, 2 nothing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Costa Rica probably is the worst team in the octagonal, so... Yeah, I, I I think uh they have not kind of rid themselves of, of the stink of the Ronald Gonzalez era quite yet. It's gonna take a little while. They're still playing Randall Leal centrally, which I actually think he does well for Nashville, but for his national team, he has been so much better as a winger and and both of the past two managers just don't see that. Um I would honestly 
for for reasons other than having to watch him lose a game, would prefer to not even see him on the pitch for Costa Rica um, next Wednesday in Columbus. But um, you know, if if it comes down to it, let's let's see Randall score one, but the United States uh, score score three or four against a, a pretty weak Costa Rica team. Randall gets a goal, and and former Arsenal man Joel Campbell gets a goal, and it's four two. Yes, <laughs> that's what that's what I'll root for. Uh, let's go to the final whistle. And I'll keep things in World Cup qualifying land. And I want to give you a viewing guide of one match in each non-CONCACAF confederation that you should watch in the next week and a half of of qualifying or whenever you're listening to this next few days. Um, So and I'm not counting Oceania. I'm sorry. Sorry, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. First, I'll go to Asia. Thursday, 11 a.m., Saudi Arabia and Japan. I know you've been worried about this one for months and it's finally here. Um... It's interesting to me. Japan would be a favorite to uh, to top that group, and yet Saudi Arabia and Australia, who another favorite to top the group, um, both on six points, Japan just with three, and facing some pressure to get a win over the Saudis on the road. I think that one's going to be pretty interesting uh, in my first content recommendation game. Uh, number two, Conway Ball, any of them? Any of them at all. Watch any of those matches. Conway rules. It truly does. So awesome. Even Bolivia and Venezuela. It's going to be salty, even if it's not good soccer. Uh, Argentina-Uruguay is the one I'm going to choose. Second and third um, in South American qualifying. Both of them odds-on favorites to qualify, as they pretty much always do. But when they play each other, they're both going to treat it like a desperate must-win match because that's what happens in Conball qualifying. <laughs> Sunday, 6.30 p.m. Um, it could get pretty messy. Don't oh, no, 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 no. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the, the, so, no, I'm going to interrupt them. The, the Rio de la Plata Derby, we'll just call it, to, to rid us of that of that uh, pun work. Perfect, anyway. as that is the river that celebrates, celebrates, separates those two countries. I promise I've only had half of my Kirkland signature here <laughs> over here. It sounds like I've had more. Uh, let's, let's go to Africa. Uh, not a lot of matches really caught my eye. I was like, what am I going to recommend? Oh, crap, there it is. Libya and Egypt, Friday, 2 p.m., these guys have a rivalry. They faced off in recent years in a playoff for the right to go to the World Cup. They do not like each other. Mo Salah, I'm assuming, is going to be playing for the Egyptians. You just saw the goal he scored uh, against Manchester City uh, on Sunday. So Friday, 2 p.m., that's one to keep an eye on. That's going to be really good, and those two teams are at the top of their group early in, in African qualifying. Only four team groups there, and so every match matters in the in the sixth that you're playing. Um, quite a bit. And then there wasn't one as I looked through Europe that really stood out to me. I mean, again, you're going to see any number of stars there. So I'll go with Slovakia and Slovenia because every year their governments get together and trade mail that was supposed to go to the <laughs> other country. That's not a joke. That is actually the, the case. And so it's That's a convenient awesome. option for them to get in the press box, bring their, their departments of state, sit down and trade mail while they watch a match. That is amazing. I did not know that. Um, I think most listeners probably have figured out by now if they didn't already know that I'm something of a weird geography nerd. And so to learn an awesome geography adjacent uh, factoid is is very exciting for me. From a fellow geography nerd, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I won the seventh grade geography beat, just saying. Uh, I'm not that nerdy, geez. <laughs> um, I actually don't have a, a content recommendation in, in the specific this week other than watch all of all of the qualifying that you can if, if you're still working from home you have plenty of opportunities during the day to, to pop a game on tv and work while you watch and it's so much fun to watch national play 
Um, we, we've discussed before how we got into soccer. And for me, the U.S. men's national team did it. But it's kind of the, the pageantry and excitement of international soccer more than the club game that has always done it for me. And I'm, I'm really excited for yet another World Cup qualifying window. There's so much good soccer coming up. I, I know that it's it's a little bit disappointing um, to have this break in club play right before things really get hot and heavy for MLS. I've never been more excited for an international window at least in a long time, uh, than, than what's coming up here, especially for the U S but so many other awesome things going on around the world. Uh, that's it. I think uh, if you're still listening, God bless you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, please keep listening and, and, you know, do us a favor. Honestly, if you, if you like the show, if you don't like uh, us, then well, you're not 57 minutes into the show right now. If you like the show, hop on Apple podcasts and, and rate us and give a review. It means a lot to us, but we're not doing it for the personal gratification. Maybe only a little bit for that. Uh, <laughs> it's so people can find the show more easily. It gets bumped up to the top of recommendation lists and um, it legitimizes us, whether or not we deserve it. Uh, and, so, it legit, and it legitimizes that there's a, a market for soccer discussion in Nashville, which is something that you and I have talked about in recent weeks, too, that maybe some people think there isn't that. And let's let's prove those people wrong. There you go. That's it. Do it for the community. Don't do it for us. Um, and do it for, for your soccer community. Uh, we would really appreciate it. And uh, we'll still keep our offer up. If you screenshot your review and tweet it at us at West Bowling TN at Club Country USA, reply to that with a mailbag question and we will read it no matter how stupid it is. But we know it's going to be brilliant <laughs> because our, uh, our listeners are exceptionally smart. Tim, what else you got this week? Anything? That is it for me, man. I'm just uh, happy that we made it through another week. Unfortunately, we had a couple draws to discuss rather than a win, but next week we won't have any of that. So, so we'll, we'll figure out a way to talk about it nonetheless. It's going to be an undefeated week for Nashville SC as they get ready through international break for DC United and a crucial home stretch, and we'll be back to preview it in the coming weeks. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music. Thanks to ESPN 94.9 for the highlights and to the 440 Sports Network. Be sure to listen to all the shows on the network, but especially us, and we will talk to you soon.